Welcome to Shoot This Now, the podcast where every week or so we talk about stories that should be made into TV shows or movies. My name is Tim Malloy, and with me is my beautiful wife and co-host, Deirdre McCarrick. Hi. Hi, Tim. How's it going? I'm good. How are you? Great. You've been sick. The neighbor's dog is barking. It's just a homey Wednesday, January 23rd for us. It's true. And I hope, as I've said many times, that I have more of a Kathleen Turner voice now because of this never-ending illness that I'm dealing with. I'm sorry. It's been going on for a long time. It has. Um, Well, your being sick has enabled us to spend a lot of time watching documentaries like the two documentaries about the Fire Festival, uh, the Netflix one and the Hulu one. They're both hilarious. Which did you like better? Um, I actually thought I was going to like the Hulu one more because I thought there was like a conflict of interest baked into the Netflix one, I guess, uh, F. Jerry. Mm-hmm. Let's call them Fuck Jerry. They're called Fuck Jerry. The mm-hmm. company that was involved in promoting the Fire Festival was also involved in making the movie. And I thought, oh no, maybe there's like a conflict there where they won't give you the full story. But no, it's still pretty brutal. Yeah. it's a. They're both really brutal takedowns. Yeah, I mean, it didn't take much to take them down, though. <laughs> you know, they kind of took themselves down. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but they are... Like Pablo Escobar. Whose <laughs> island they did not have the party on. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely not Pablo Escobar's island. One of many things that went wrong. That was like the only selling feature for me, by the way. If I had any intention of going to Fire Festival, which I didn't, <laughs> I would have maybe gone just to be like, I went to Pablo Escobar's private island. Yeah. Maybe. Just because. <laughs> Um, so you are one of the last of the millennials by age. Um, I consider myself post-millennial. Post-millennial. Okay. Mm-hmm. So do you feel like the millennial, do you feel like the fire festival is like the concert for your generation? Absolutely not. No, I, I, I don't think it was for millennials. I think it was for this really particular wealthy subset of millennials. Okay. Who are the exception, not the norm. Okay, because there's been a lot of talk about the Fire Festival being like a millennial festival and people making fun of dopey millennials for spending thousands of dollars to fly off to an island in the Bahamas and party for days. But of course, that is a totally unfair generalization about millennials. And it got me thinking, if we're going to judge entire generations by the terribleness of their festivals, I hope no one ever finds out about Woodstock 99. Maybe the worst festival in the history of festivals. Yeah. Um. My generation, I think we have to own this one. This was in 1999. Mm-hmm. I was 24. Um, a friend told me the Fire Festival was the worst festival ever. And after reading about Woodstock, I was like, oh, really? How many actual massive fires broke out at the Fire Festival? None. How many sexual assaults were there at the Fire Festival? None that we know of. Were thousands of people covered in a mix of mud and shit at the Fire Festival? No. All those things happened at Woodstock 99. Um, And I think we need to talk about it because it is a dark, sad story about entitlement. Entitlement gone horribly awry. Wow. Um, Since you pitched a story last week, which was fantastic, check out last week's episode, I'm going to kind of pitch this one, and I invite your questions and to shoot things down. Have at it. I'm excited. I don't know much about this. I... um was just going into college, I think, in, not I think, I know I was, in 1999, and, you know, those years, you're kind of so, you've got your blinders on, you're so focused on starting school that everything else that's happening in the world doesn't exist. Yeah, and you went to college in Syracuse in 1999. Yes. A month after this happened. Pretty wild. And also 40 miles away from where this happened, Troy, New York. They were probably still cleaning up. Um, so let's set the scene of what 1999 was like. It's the end of the Clinton presidency. It's a great year for movies. I was living in Pittsburgh, and it was very cold, so I saw everything from The Matrix to Fight Club to Magnolia to The Blair Witch Project, Eyes Wide Shut, All About My Mother, um, also The Phantom Menace. Hmm. Not necessarily a great movie, but it came out. Um, my favorite musical acts at the time were Third Eye Blind and Elliot Smith and The Ben Folds Five. It was not a great year for hip-hop. Uh, we'll get more into that soon. The original Woodstock is famously celebrated as three days of peace and music, but Woodstock 99, a crassly commercial attempt to cash in on the legacy, is better remembered for violence, rape, rap metal, and fires. It gives us one of the first glances at the Rust Belt, dumb white guy rage that foreshadowed the mob mentality politics we have now, a time of rampant groping and mindless breaking stuff. It's kind of the Donald Trump of rock festivals. 
Wow, you didn't bury the lead. I would love to see a movie about this, although it would be a tricky movie. You have to show terrible behavior without endorsing it, and some of the things are so vile, I think you have to describe them off screen without showing them. You also don't want to be heavy-handed. So I think you want to shoot this kind of documentary style, almost like the famous 1970 documentary about the original 1969 Woodstock called Woodstock Three Days of Peace and Music, which I watched on PBS with my parents once, and they just freaked out. I mean, they're baby boomers, and they just got like, they were basically passing fake joints. I mean, my parents are total teetotalers. How do you pass a fake joint? They were just like so in the mood, like so happy about Woodstock and talking about like Country Joe and the Fish and stuff and reminiscing about a concert. Did they just kind of like press their fingers together? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, they're, they're, they're clean living, you know, you know them. Yes, they are. Yeah. Um, so you remember those beautiful shots of Live Aid from Bohemian Rhapsody where we were both super into it Mm -hmm. and just like, God, I wonder, wonder what it was like to be there. This is the opposite of that. Instead of like everybody clapping in unison with Freddie Mercury, these are sunburned people in tattered clothes, covered in mud lace with latrine runoff, massive fires raging all around them, walls and towers stripped of plywood, and the Red Hot Chili Peppers flee standing naked on stage, pausing for an instant to wonder what the hell has happened. That's the start of our movie. And then we flash back four days earlier to July 22nd, 1999. Wow. You know, it's really interesting. I mean, the first thing I think of when I picture that image of flea is that you can juxtapose that with, you know, Jimi Hendrix, right? And that that moment when I guess what did he play the national anthem mm-hmm. and how he kind of it was in the middle of the night I think wasn't it like two in the morning that sort of peaceful yeah where he brought the crowd to kind of just total attention complete attention with this national anthem that just yeah. washes over everything and like mm-hmm. cleans up everything that's gone on at Woodstock yeah. compared to the Red Hot Chili Peppers who actually did a Hendrix tribute that we'll talk about that kind of hideously backfired by the way Although we're going to talk about lots of awful things on this podcast and say some negative things about some people, nothing bad will be said about the Red Hot Chili Peppers because those dudes are great. Okay. Um, great. I'm glad you speak for both of us. They. <laughs> well, did they come to your local coffee shop when you were in high school and hang out with the high school kids and be super nice to them? Yeah, Tim. They hung out in Needham, Massachusetts all the time. Okay. Well, they did That's come. That's where they, they, they got after it in An- Needham, Mass. Anthony Kiedis and Flea once came to a little coffee shop in my little hometown, San Pedro, California, because their friend, bass player Mike Watt, was playing at this little venue, and Flea gave me a cigarette. And if you give a cigarette to a teenage boy, you have a friend for life. Truth. We flash back <laughs> to the arrival of hundreds of thousands of kids pouring into an old Air Force base in Troy, New York, that town about 40 miles from Syracuse. Um, since you were living right around there, can you sort of describe what that area was like? I mean, it's um, it's one of the, it's, you know, in the middle of New York State, it's one of those cities and towns that is cold most of the year, um, and it kind of has that pallor of a place that's always buried in snow even in the summer you know um it kind of never can quite recover and I think that that's that's sort of how the city feels I mean I was at the the university there which was pretty thriving and I think it was sort of the epicenter of the city um but everything around it wasn't quite as um bright and resilient and magical yeah I was living in Pittsburgh then as I mentioned so I had kind of a similar vibe there are a lot of towns nearby that had something that closed, that when it closed, the town kind of lost a lot, like whether it was a mill or a, in this case, it was a military base. Um, In Troy, New York, it was an Air Force base, Griff's Air Force base, which is the site of this concert. Um, They're trying to put kind of a peaceful spin on a place that had been a Cold War relic. Um, Rolling Stone magazine calls it the least rock and roll venue imaginable a slab of concrete and barbed wire designed as a home for nuclear warheads. Mm. That's our setting. So we need some characters for this thing, um, if we're going to make this a movie. Uh, One guy we're going to meet is Fred Durst. He's the lead singer of Limp Bizkit. And for years to come, people are going to fairly or unfairly call him out as the villain of Woodstock 99. Uh, Do you remember what you thought of Limp Bizkit in about 1999? Um, I do. I mean, I think I was not a huge fan to be honest with you. Um, like, I didn't have any Limp Bizkit CDs, mm-hmm. which would have been kind of the hallmark of whether I was into them at the time. So mm-hmm. I would say not exactly my cup of tea. 
yeah, they weren't my cup of tea either. I feel like I, I really, really liked hip-hop music in the early 90s, and I feel like by the end of the 90s, white people had gotten their hands on it and messed it up pretty badly. Um, so Limp Bizkit is one of the most popular groups propagating rap metal or new metal, as it was called, NU metal, which sort of mi- mixed the beats of hip-hop with the aggression of metal. And while a lot of us, in retrospect, think it's very stupid, in 1999, it felt like something we should maybe hedge our bets and try to like, because sort of what if this is the new cool music? Um, I did a little research today on just like whether Limp Bizkit were as popular as I remembered them, and they were. Um, Limp Bizkit's 1999 album, Significant Other, was released on Interscope, which also distributed Tupac, Snoop Dogg, and Dr. Dre. Uh, one track featured the highly respected Method Man and DJ Premier. Um, so even some hip-hop artists were offering an olive branch to Limp Bizkit. The album also featured Scott Wayland, super respected producer Brendan O'Brien. Um, like it or not, Limp Bizkit was pretty close to the center of mainstream music in 1999. Uh, the band's biggest hit is Nookie. Um, Fred Durst spends the video for Nookie walking around in khakis and a red hat until he's followed by a very large group of diverse, attractive women dressed in khakis and red hats. And just an aside, whether we're talking about Charlottesville or Limp Bizkit video, nothing good has ever come from a large group of people wearing khakis and red hats. The music for Nookie is kind of great for what it is. Let's be honest. The lyrics, not great, but the music kind of hits. Guitarist Wes Borland once told the music magazine Kerrang! that the song didn't have any lyrics at first, but there was a porn magazine in the studio with the word Nookie on the cover, so that became the working title. And then Durst wrote words around that. He once told MTV, it's about my ex-girlfriend, how she treated me like shit, and I couldn't leave her, wouldn't get over it. She screwed my friends and used me for my money. I tried to figure out why I did it, and I figured I did it all for the nookie. So Durst, like a lot of khaki and red-hatted dudes, doesn't see himself as an aggressor. He sees himself as a victim. In a 2016 interview with Flipboard, he said, Little did I know the band would turn into what it turned into and be a source to tap into some of the different things that happened in my life, being a bullied and tortured kid. So as we hear about the things that are going to happen at Woodstock 99, let's keep in mind to Fred Durst, Fred Durst is the good guy in the movie. He's not a bad guy. Okay. Another guy we're going to meet is Michael Lang. Michael Lang is a baby boomer hippie type who during, I mean, not even hippie type. He's a full, he's the most hippie hippie there is, uh, who during the course of this movie is kind of going to watch his dreams die. He is a legend. He co-created the original Woodstock, a massive success. Um, Not a financial success, but obviously a huge cultural success. The most memorable single event of the baby boomer generation He's a part of film history, too. He turns up in that Woodstock documentary we talked about. At one point in the movie, he's standing uh, there in like a sleeveless brown vest and his white dude afro explaining that Woodstock, the original Woodstock, needs to make $2 million to break even, but he sounds like he doesn't even care. Quote, the point is that it's happening, he says, and it's working. That's enough for now. At another point, uh, there's a helicopter buzzing overhead, which seems kind of ominous. Somebody wonders what that is. And the co-organizer of the concert says the copter is dropping flowers and dry clothes. So that's just how idyllic the original Woodstock is. Lang says at one point, this culture and this generation, away from the old culture and the older generation, you see how they function on their own without cops, without guns, without hassle. Everyone pulls together and everyone helps each other, and it works. It's been working since we got here. So I think in our little movie, someone shows Lang this footage, and let's say it's another character, MTV's Kurt Loder. Do you remember Kurt Loder? Of course. Who doesn't remember Kurt Loder? What are your thoughts on Kurt Loder? I live for Kurt Loder. Me too. I just love, I loved, you know what I liked about him? Yeah. He wasn't afraid to be straight as an arrow in a world where everyone else is trying to be alternative. He's just like, take it or leave it. I'm Uh Kurt Loder. I felt like he was great at telling you why the music you liked was good and important. And he'd seen everything from like the Egg and Turner, Egg and Tina Turner review to like Guns N' Roses, mm-hmm. and he knew why they were all good. But he would also call people on their shit. Mm-hmm. Like he called people out on homophobia like way before it was cool to do that. Mm-hmm. Kurt Loder was kind of like elder statesman of music, I think. Very much so. But also like a call them on their shit guy. Like he kept people honest. So that's what he's going to do in this story too. Okay. I really like Kurt Loder. I do too. So I think we put some expository dialogue in the mouth of Kurt Loder, a rock historian, and he tells Lang, like, hey, you were involved in Woodstock, but you were also involved in Altamont, which is the infamous Rolling Stones concert where the Hells Angels did security. 
and a lot of bad things happened, including one guy ended up getting stabbed to death. And I think Lang, the hippie Woodstock organizer, is going to say, oh, this is going to be like Woodstock. This is foreshadowing. Okay. Okay. Um, we've heard about how Fire Festival was a con job or a Ponzi scheme. With Woodstock 99, that isn't the case. But people still felt ripped off because of the terrible prices on site. Um, a Darth Maul bong. Darth Maul is the red guy from Phantom Menace. Mm-hmm. Um, costs $30. Who's your favorite Star Wars character, by the way? Ever? Yeah. You know, I don't like the prequels, but I actually do like Natalie Portman's character in the prequels a lot. She's your favorite Star Wars character of all time? I mean... Natalie Portman? She just has an interesting arc. She watches her boyfriend turn into a total monster. Black Swan? Huh? Black Swan? Black Swan. Okay, I'm going to ask you again. (laughs) It's Chewbacca. No, Chewbacca's mine. You know what someone pointed out the other day? What? They pointed out that... I forget where I was watching this, but it's like an old YouTube clip of like some like woke dude in the 70s. And he's like, I thought that Star Wars was very speciesist. I didn't like that all the characters were... That all the lead characters were white. And I thought it was strange that Luke and Han get a medal at the end, but Chewbacca doesn't. I think he did. It was just like in his... It was like covered in his like chest fur. <laughs> That's my take on it. How could you not give Chewbacca a medal? I don't think he got a medal. He that got, he got a GD medal. I got to watch it again. Yeah. Let's watch it frame by frame. Okay. Okay. We will. Also, I am i don't smoke pot, but I, f- from my perspective, a Darth Maul bong for $30 actually does not seem like a bad deal. Really? Yeah. Well, when I went with... I feel like that seems kind of like an intricate bong. I mean, it just How needs to... How much did a Diet Coke cost? Oh, well, water was like multiples of dollars. I talked to my friend Dan Cohn, who has been to every concert ever and knows everything about every concert ever. Um, great dude. He reached out to some friends, and like one of the first things they said to him was like, oh, yeah, water was like absurd. I don't want to put an exact figure on it, but I don't think you'd be off to think like 6 or $7 for a bottle of water. Mm. Like crazy amounts of... And maybe the price fluctuated during the day. I don't know. But the expensive water is going to be a problem because um, the temperatures are going to hit the hundreds. Food is also expensive and there aren't enough ATMs. So you can find photos of people standing in really long lines. There aren't enough toilets. The toilets start to leak. That's why there's mud all over Woodstock 99. It's not from like rain. It's from leaky latrines. Ew. Gross. So the mood starts happy, but then people get drunk or they come down from highs or they get hungrier and thirstier and more sunburned and the mood changes. Um, I want to stress, these are a bunch of angry white dudes. And you know how we angry white dudes are when we can't get an ATM machine when we want one. Yeah, or if you can't get a cliff bar. Okay, that was that was too you close get to home. angry. Was, the, cliff bar is the religion of white dudes. You cannot, wow. We can't deprive you guys of those. <sighs> All right. So Rolling Stone reports that pretty much the is that is that accurate though? Was the was the majority of the makeup was it white men? Um, I mean, it's white men and women. Uh, Rolling Stone reported that pretty much the only black people there are the guards who are called the Peace Patrol and a few performers like James Brown and Ice Cube. Um, of course, a lot of the groups on stage are white groups that have built their careers on ripping off black music. Um, and How in- different though is that from something like Coachella? I mean, I I've never been to Coachella. Or Lala. I know a lot of people are wearing headdresses that they're not supposed to be wearing. Yeah. Um, but I don't really know. I don't either. I mean, my gut is that it's not incredibly diverse. Okay. But uh, fact check me. You're well, a reporter. This is going to... I'm not... You do the legwork. I'm, I'm talking about Woods, Woodstock 99. Let me throw out hypotheses and you, and you can prove them. Okay. But let me say for sure, Woodstock 99 is not known for its diversity. Okay. And that's going to be an issue because white people's entitlement is going to be an issue. White males' entitlement, especially with women, is going to be an issue. Um, Which kind of leads us into one thing you need to understand about the 90s and 80s that maybe you can vouch for, too. There used to be way more public nudity than there is now because people didn't have cameras. Um, People would just take their clothes off a lot more frequently. Like when I went to the Kentucky Derby in 1999, there was rampant nudity. I always tell you the story of the one girl who was like, y'all, as soon as it gets hot, I'm taking my clothes off. And how hilarious we thought that was. Yeah, I mean, I don't remember that. Um, not to say that that's not true. I just, I, I made it, it might predate me a little. Okay. Like I was a teenager. Right. 
Okay, fair enough. Well, I was off seeing rampant nudity everywhere I went. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Some things never change. Um, <laughs> so, nudity is pretty rampant at Woodstock 99. Cheryl Crow commented on it from the stage. Flea was naked on stage. Um, Dan, who I talked to, vouched that his friend said that they saw lots of nudity. This movie is probably a hard R. Rolling Stone suggested that some of the topless women there were professionals, quote, passing for hippie chicks despite suspiciously high heels, suggesting that some of them may have been paid to be there in order to make the atmosphere more, whatever, enjoyable for dudes um, or to lure them into like head shops and stuff like that. Um, And while lots of people took off their clothes voluntarily for fun and maybe for money, many other people had their clothes pulled off and worse. Um, As the festival grinds on, some guys take nudity or sexually charged atmosphere, whatever, as license to commit assault. Things are going to get very bad at this point in the story. A Rolling Stone writer witnesses a group of guys huddling around women and chanting, show us your tits. At one point, two women are surrounded by 60 guys who chant, pick her up. They undo their bra tops, cameras flash, and the guys move on to new targets. Uh, one woman tells the writer there was no way out. It was either show them or you don't get out. The other says there was no choice. A Washington Post story from right after Woodstock 99 by Anna Wartofsky quoted a man named David Schneider who described what he saw during a corn performance on Friday night. Basically, he saw a young woman who weighed less than 100 pounds get pushed into a mosh pit. Guys tore her clothes off, and he said at one point five guys were raping this girl and having sex with her. He said he saw similar assaults of at least five other women who struggled to free themselves and security guards near the stage were aware of the assaults but couldn't intervene, I guess, because of the chaos inside of the crowd. He said that after the assault, some people in the crowd helped them get to security. Um, Jonathan Davis, the lead singer of Korn, apparently had no idea, although reportedly this went on during Korn's set. He said he thought it was the greatest show they'd ever played. He said, the second night, Limp Bizkit fucked it up for everybody. They really did. Here's what happened the next night. Limp Bizkit, introduced by Vern Troyer, came out for what Durst would later call the highlight of rap metal music. By the way, if you want to watch these interviews, you can find them on the extremely uh, excellent YouTube video with the extremely terrible title, Woodstock 99, Aftermath of Woodstock 99, 725.99, Woodstock 99, East Stage, Rome, NY. That's good SEO right there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so is it about Woodstock 99 or the aftermath of Woodstock 99? Just if you're Googling Woodstock 99 or Aftermath of Woodstock Either 99. Or. There's a little something for everybody. If you're just Googling 7 slash 25 slash 99 or East Stage, Rome, New York, it's going to pop up. So okay. any of those are great. Um, <clears throat> at one point, Durst saw people surfing on plywood. He ended up surfing on some plywood himself going out into the crowd. That's pretty baller. That's cool. Uh, what he didn't know is that the crowd worked up from heat or being drunk or high or whatever had torn down the plywood from wall set up for the concert. He would later explain, I had no idea there was anything negative going on at all. For instance, he didn't know that people were breaking stuff. By the way, a lot of this happened during Limp Bizkit's song called Break Stuff. Hmm. Um, during Limp Bizkit's set, Durst said some things that would be contested for years after because they frustratingly could be read as either inciting a riot or urging people to just be super cool. Like he said... You got your problems. You got a problem with me. You got a problem with yourself. It's time to take all that negative energy and put it the fuck out. He explained in retrospect that he meant for people to expel all their negative energy so they could replace it with positive energy. Quote, that means jumping, jumping and singing. It doesn't mean start raping and burning the place down. Yeah. Um, Police investigator David Krause, by the way, told the Washington Post that one assault took place during the set. The Limp Bizkit set, a 24-year-old woman from Pittsburgh told police uh, two men assaulted her and one of them raped her. Uh, Durst said that when he came off stage, police said he'd incited a riot and that the wood was in the plywood that the pants had ripped down. He said, I didn't see any of that. Everyone I saw was having an amazing time. But Jonathan Davis from Corn remembers things differently. Are they like arch enemies? Well, here's the thing. Jonathan Davis from Corn. I've never listened to the whole Limp Bizkit album, mind you. I know that Limp Bizkit fans are going to like tweet at me and go like, you haven't even listened to the album. But apparent, according to the track listing, Fred Durst and Jonathan um, Davis were both on one of the tracks on the Limp Bizkit record that came out that year. So they were at least social at one point. But Jonathan Davis kind of threw Fred Durst under the bus or called him, took him to task or held him accountable, however you want to interpret that. Quote, Fred was like, come on, let's break stuff. That song. Him doing that, that just centered over the top. And that's when all that stuff happened. 
people being hurt, beat up, hit, all that craziness. He instigated the whole thing. I was right there watching it. Durst. I had no idea the thing would be pointed at me as a guy starting a riot, but I guess to this day it's going to be something that Limp Bizkit fucked up. Um, there's also a thing where he thinks nobody liked Limp Bizkit because nobody wanted rap and nobody wanted metal. Rap metal? I'm just that guy, I guess. Maybe I'm that guy. Yeah. Um, what did Lang, the organizer of the original Woodstock, think? He told the Washington Post he'd watched videos of the performances by Corn and Limp Biscuit and said he saw no evidence of any sexual assaults beyond what he termed groping, which is sexual assault. Um, but he did say that anybody who had committed assaults should be should be punished to the full extent of the law. Um, meanwhile, there's a woman at a crisis service center for the Mohawk Valley YWCA, Rosemary Venero, who I think could be another great character in this movie, um, who said that she counseled four women, including one woman who said she'd been assaulted at the concert and one in the mosh pit. Um, her quote is, the combination of heat, readily available drugs and alcohol, and the lack of food and sleep was a perfect breeding ground for sexual assault. And when I say that, I mean anything from groping, touching, and molesting to rape and sodomy. Police said at least two assaults took place in the campgrounds. Um, we really don't know how many of these assaults are overlapping, whether some of them may have been reported by multiple agencies or whether there were more that were unreported. Sunday, the next day, was the day for fire. A group called PAX, which is now called the Center to Prevent Youth Violence, distributed little candles for candlelight vigil, vigil for the Red Hot Chili Peppers song, Under the Bridge. That sounds nice, right? Yeah, that sounds very nice. Do you know what happened? I have an idea. I have a hunch. Which hunch? They lit Troy New York on fire with their little baby candles. <laughs> they used the little baby candles to start bonfires. And remember all those uh, bottled waters? Mm-hmm. Okay, those are empty of water and nobody can afford to buy new water. So people use the bottles to fuel the fire. Wow. <laughs> they also used some more of those plywood boards that had been ripped down to fuel the fire. Um, meanwhile, the chili peppers great band, wonderful people, had made a promise to Jimi Hendrix's sister that they would play a song in his honor. And do you know which Jimi Hendrix song it was? I do. It was Fire. Mm-hmm. And they meant it as a beautiful tribute to Hendrix, but people didn't take it that way, and things continued to go badly. Um, they tipped over and broke into ATMs. They robbed vending booths. It was a riot. AP writer John Kekis quoted a man named Mike Long, 31, of Detroit, who said as police moved in, this is not the real Woodstock. They messed up. They messed up the whole name of Woodstock. The AP estimated that about 200 to 500 youths actively took part in the rioting. Uh, the thousands more watched and cheered. This is out of like 400,000 attendees, but still, it's bad. Wait, there were 400,000? As many as 400,000. Wow. So, I mean, I hate to, you know. Devil's advocate? No, no, no. I mean, I'm not, I'm not devil's advocating this, uh, but I, I do want to kind of. Just, I don't know, throw a hard diss at Mike Long. Like, did he really expect this Woodstock to be the Woodstock? Like, lower your expectations, bro. So okay. I, just wanted to, I just wanted to give a shout out to Mike Long for being a punk and a sucker. Okay, so Mike Long, 31 of Detroit, is at a concert 20 years ago, and a guy from the AP asked him for a quote, and you are now making fun of him. Yeah. Okay. Well, I thought maybe he thought it would be like the real Woodstock because there were people there like Elvis Costello, Sheryl Crow. I mean, there were like some Willie Nelson. Would you Willie consider Nelson. Sheryl Crow and Janis Joplin equivalents? Kind of, because I don't really like Janis really? Joplin that much. You think Sheryl Crow is and Janis Joplin? I, mean, I don't really? love either one, but I think Janis Whoa. Joplin is like Whoa. way overrated. Okay. Respect the dead. Yeah. I don't know. Moving on. Yeah. Um, MTV pulled its crew. I mean, MTV pulled out of Woodstock 99. And Kurt Loder, the voice of reason, later told USA Today, it was dangerous to be around. The whole scene was scary. There were just waves of hatred bouncing around the place. It was clear we had to get out of there. It was like a concentration camp. Ooh. To get in, you get frisked to make sure you're not bringing in any water or food that would prevent you from buying their outrageously priced booths. You wallow around in garbage and human waste. There was a palpable mood of anger. Again, we have no idea how many assaults took place. There were more than 40 arrests, which is, again, not that many. Um, clearly, a lot of things happened there that were not prosecuted. Um, 
how do we end this horrible thing with what I think is the most horrible image in the entire story? Um, it comes from the official Woodstock website, as cited by the Post. A woman said her daughter was separated from her friends on Monday morning in a, quote, clean-cut college-looking guy with dirty blonde hair pulled my daughter into a tent and raped her. There were people around and must have heard her screams and the struggle inside. No one did anything. And I think that's a great horror movie ending for this horrible story. Um, I don't want to show that, obviously, but I think you can just show the outside of this tent and play the music, the rising, distorted, haunting version of the Star-Spangled Banner that Jimi Hendrix played at the original Woodstock just to editorialize, this is where we are. Um, This is also one of those movies where I think you do a lot with the credits. I think you can show the real interviews and the real footage and the credits. Um, So I think we play Nookie again, probably without the lyrics, because the lyrics suck, and we say what happened to all of our key characters. Uh, Kurt Loder moved on to Sirius Satellite Radio. Fred Durst is now a vegan and very into Flipboard. And Michael Lang is working on another Woodstock anniversary wow. show, which might happen this year. Th- would that be the 50th anniversary? That would be, what year is it? Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. yeah. What's Flipboard? Flipboard is a fantastic website that just posts news stories and articles. Hmm. And er, Fred Durst is super into it. And I'd love to see a section where Fred Durst reads all of the articles that he's been reading on Flipboard because they're really weird honestly like you can see what different people have read and fred durst is reading things like why you really do need to wash avocados before eating them seven food pairings that will increase nutrient absorption and seven ways to do intermittent fasting so who's our protagonist in this oh can i say one more thing oh sure sorry i think just at the end of the whole movie just during the credits just as like kind of a side you show side-by-side images of durst and his red hat and khakis and also all the charlotteville racists and the red hat and khakis and you play trump's access hollywood grabbed by the pussy interview i just think like a subtle way of yeah it all. yeah yeah i because i don't think the red hats and khakis are yeah enough of a cue yeah i think just like just a little throwaway to make yeah. sure people why don't we just also superimpose mega on those red hats well you know That's i think that idea. would just make it yeah just so people... Just a nod. Make sure people a, really get it. a hint. Yeah. Yeah. We're okay. su- we're su- we just appreciate subtlety in a way that most people don't. Yeah. Um, I disagree. I think most <laughs> people appreciate subtlety. Um, yeah. So you were asking who's the hero? Yeah. Kurt Loder is totally... Kurt Loder is totally our guy who we're seeing it through his eyes. Right. Um, no question. Kurt Loder is like that guy. Fred Durst is like tortured and sees himself as like being part of this great, wonderful Woodstock for his generation, but is possibly doing terrible things at the same time, like a lot of entitled people, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure he would never think of himself as entitled, but I think when you're a rock star performing for hundreds of thousands of people, you're in a pretty great privileged position at that moment. I mean, there's something interesting, too, about like this whole idea uh, of like freedom of speech and people interpreting or misinterpreting lyrics yeah. I mean, there is something about like, okay, an art. when do you draw the line? Like with comedians, with artists, about what they can say and what they can't say and what's what's appropriate and what's not appropriate, you know? Yeah. Like even if he's singing break things, yeah. does that mean you should break things or is that a lyric? Yeah. So I, I think that's something, you know, com- comics are dealing with in uh, in a profound way right now. Well, you get into it with Trumpy, too, where he says things that are ridiculous, and then his supporters say, look, he didn't mean that literally. Yeah, but he's not an artist. He's a president, so it's different. You don't think The Apprentice was pure artistry? Um, again, he is currently, <laughs> now, the president. I do think there's a big mix-up where people want to be held to the same standards as comedians or artists, where they're like, look, it's a joke. Like, I'm allowed to do it. It's like, yeah. no, but you're a senator. Right, it's contextual. It's yeah. what's your position. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it it is a tricky thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that resonates for me that I think started there is just like these people who have a lot of anger and nothing productive to do with it, and they just break things. And I think a lot of things got broke from people acting on those kinds of impulses in the last the last few years. Yeah, I mean, it might be interesting too to understand. It, you know, it's not just like all half a million of these people were you know, bad intentioned, you know, what's causing this outrage, you know? Yeah, they were wronged. Yeah. I mean, they were... I mean, it's capitalism at its finest, you know, with 500,000 
victims, so, so to speak, or participants unwillingly. And they turn, the men turn on the women quickly. Yeah. Some, some of, of them. Some of them do. Yeah. Let's yeah. not generalize. <laughs> Tim, you're a reporter. Yeah. A group of men turn on the women yeah. in a horrible way. For sure. Um, should we go into part two where we cast this thing and talk about who should direct it and what it sure. should be called? Let's do it. Cool. Okay, so you have a very strong idea about who should play Fred Durst. Who should get the prize role of Fred Durst? I should mention, by the way, Fred Durst is now a filmmaker. Oh, interesting. So. Um, okay, so I thought... Oh, where did I put my note to myself? Here it is. Um, okay, so I thought... I think I nailed it. For Fred Durst, an actor that you and I both really, really like, Emery Cohen. Deirdre, that's genius. I know. That's that's such a good Fred Durst. I think he'd be perfect. Does he have enough energy to play Fred Durst? I he could bring it. You know what though? Here's the thing about Fred Durst as an artist. Like he didn't seem like he had that much energy even like when he had energy. Yeah. I he, think he has enough of that kind of like supposed toughness, you know. That is the best Fred Durst casting I could ever imagine. Thank you. Do you I even want to try to challenge no. me? Wow. Okay. No. So I just get I get the belt. I'm keeping the belt. You totally get the belt. Okay. All right. So we're building the movie around Emery Cohen as Fred Durst. Yes. Um, I don't know if we're building it around him, but he is <laughs> he is Fred Durst. We're we're doing the rest of the casting around Emery Cohen as Fred Durst. So for Kurt Loader, do you have an idea? I had a couple ideas. Um, none of these had like the magic fairy dust that Emery Cohen had um, on that casting choice. But I still I could go with either of these. I thought maybe Edward Norton, maybe John Hamm. I actually think John Hamm has like this a similar voice and kind of tonality. He so does. Yeah. That's an incredible choice. Thank you. I had Neil Patrick Harris. Huh. I, I don't, don't know, know if he has the gravitas. Like I think he's a little too a little too like silly. Huh. I mean, Kurt Loder is very straightforward and serious to me yeah i think john ham is actually a fantastic fantastic kurt loader and also kurt loader would definitely not complain about having john ham play him who would yeah that's really good who was your other one edward norton that's great too that's that's fantastic and i also really like the day of him and emory cohen i do too wow i also kind of thought matt smith from the crown for Kurt Loder? For Kurt Loder. Um, wasn't he in, um, what's that telephone booth that goes through time? Oh, yeah, he's Doctor Who. Doctor Who. Yeah. What's the name of that thing? I don't remember. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I know what you mean, though. People always have it, like, my other car is a, it's like the Talus or something? A, a TARDIS. T- the TARDIS. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you laughing? Because I don't think I would have been able to continue with this podcast until we remembered what a TARDIS was. <laughs> but like, there was when we went to Newbury Comics back in um, Norwood, Mass, over the holidays, they had a TARDIS in there. Did you see it? The phone booth? Yeah. Yeah. I went into the TARDIS while you were picking out comic books that took forever. Yeah. So I had plenty of time to go into the TARDIS. Shout out to Newberry Comics and also Millionaire Picnic if you're looking for great comic book stores in Massachusetts. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so, yeah, he doesn't quite work for me. Okay, that's fair. But I might have a little TARDIS bias. Well, I like both of yours a lot, mm-hmm. and I would be so delighted to see this movie with either of those people. My criteria is always, would I go see this movie with you on a Sunday afternoon? Um, probably at the Landmark. And I would go see this movie with you on the opening weekend. What about the the old guy, Lang? Uh, the old guy, we both came up with the same guy pretty much simultaneously. Michael oh, Lang. Oh, no, but I've, I've come up with an even better one. Oh, well, w- when we said old hippie, we both originally said, oh, yeah, Jeff Bridges. Yeah, we did. But then I gave it a little more thought, and I okay. thought, okay, this is a guy who's trying to make Woodstock 3 happen, right? Mm. Like, he wasn't happy with Woodstock, Woodstock 2. He's like... I need a a, a third. Because there'd been a Woodstock in 94 also. There had been? Yeah. 
Oh, I was referring to the one in 2019. Oh, the current Woodstock. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So he's he's won multiple Woodstocks. Yeah. So I was like, what actor has that level of like passion, obsession, like fanaticism, and who's also like an effing hippie cray cray? Gary Busey. Oh, God, that's great. Yeah. Wow. Like, okay. doesn't he live in like a trailer in Malibu? If he doesn't, he must. He should. Yeah. Okay, that's absolutely incredible. I know. That's okay. So you're very good at this. Um, Emery Cohen. Yep. John Hamm. Mm-hmm. Potentially, or Ed Norton. Yep. Either one is great. And Gary Busey. Done and dusted. Gary Busey for that it factor. Yeah. Though he'll he'll sell the tickets. He he adds a little bit of sizzle, a little bit of unpredictability. Like, what's he gonna do? A little bit of sizzle. <laughs> He's our headliner. Um, I also think this is a cast of three white dudes. I think we have a great opportunity to cast a, like one of our only opportunities to cast like a strong female character um, in Venera, the woman who runs the YWCA. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I have no idea what her ethnicity is or anything, but I would also probably take this opportunity to cast a non-white person. Um, I don't know who. I'm picturing like, a Rosario Dawson, but it's probably because of the rose in her name. That's great. And I'm just, and I feel like sh- I could see her working at a woman's clinic. Yeah, her name's her name's actually Rosemary Venero. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, I love Rosario Dawson. That would be incredible. Yeah. And, and she has like a little bit of a '90s vibe. And I'd like her to somehow talk to Kurt Loder, um, because I feel like her and John Hamm would have good, good chemistry. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't know how that would happen. I don't know how we would invent that scene. But you write it. That's how it happens. Yeah. Um, but put I'd li- the pen to paper. I, I don't think we're going to spend a lot of time with the victims because we don't want to dwell on the awfulness yeah. of it. Um, but she would be a good person to give voice to them. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Yeah. I also, it's weird that you mentioned um, Rosario Dawson because I kind of, at one point thought this would be like a good Larry Clark movie um, just in the way that kids just so dispassionately covers horrible events yeah, and lets you just make decisions. But then I think like Larry Clark is kind of an old weirdo um, and I don't know if I want him to handle something like this. So then I came up with what I think is the best idea ever for a director. Okay. Mary Heron. Oh, interesting. Okay. Why... I, I'm not totally sure what her, how her experience would translate. Well, first, I like that she was around in the 90s. She was like, yeah. you know, very active in the 90s. And American Psycho does such a good job of just presenting the facts of this terrible person. Uh, I mean, I feel like it's a satire, though. Yeah. I think this could be like sort of a more um, flat, journalistic, unemotional story that the conclusions are there's no way to draw any conclusions but the ones that you would draw watching these events like it doesn't need a lot of push it doesn't need a lot of like let me tell you how to think about this like watching this you will be so horrified you need a you need a subtle director more than you need a heavy-handed director and i think she's really good at knowing when to let the audience fill in the blanks Hmm. okay interesting fill in the emotional blanks okay See, what I was thinking actually was that we have like a really great setting and we have this landscape that's really compelling. And I think the, I think the metaphor is so clear. It's like, look what happened 20 years ago. Looks, look what's happening now. Yeah. But we need some thread. I think we need some kind of thread that ties the whole thing together. Totally. So I actually think someone like Bradley Cooper, seeing what he did with The Star is Born, could be interesting. Huh. Just to bring in some, like, what's this narrative arc that, what is happening during this chaos you that kind of gets the, the, the audience involved? I mean, for me, it's three things. It's... Because it's not a documentary, you know? Right. For me, Loder is trying to just see, like, what has happened to this music I love. He's on kind of the same plane as Lang, who has this really idealistic dream that's just collapsing. And Fred Durst is starting to wonder, like, am I a good guy or a bad guy? Like, having to confront, like, what his yeah. role in all this is in a way that he hasn't really had to before. In a way that 
a lot of people don't. I mean, you just kind of go through life having really good things work out for you. They certainly worked out well for him. You always think of yourself as the as sympathetic, but what if you aren't? Yeah. I don't know. Um, also, when you mentioned landscape, I thought of Deborah Granick, who directed... I am just mentioned Deborah Granick because it's a way to plug Leave No Trace, one of two oh, movies yeah. you made me see this year that I never would have seen by myself. Yeah. She would so actually good. be really... That's an interesting choice because she kind of did that. She actually took this like really interesting setting yeah, and just put like a really simple story around it. Yeah. And it's very straightforward. And it's one of the only movies I've ever seen, if not the only movie I've ever seen. We talked about this when we got out of it. Sorry, one sec. Is your is it your dad's birthday today, by the way? Tomorrow. Oh, okay. Happy birthday, Pa. Happy birthday. Uh, Leave No Trace, as we talked about, is one of the only movies we've ever seen where there's no bad guy. Right, yeah. Not really. Yeah. And I think this story does have people who did bad things, but I don't think there's a clear-cut villain. Yeah. So. You know who else could probably do this? I'm not sure if you're a huge fan, but thinking about like the multiple perspectives and the kind of like cinema verite a little is Peter Berg, you know? Oh, okay, so Mark Wahlberg would definitely be in the movie somewhere. Well, we wouldn't object to that, Tim. Don't don't even front for one GD second. Mark Wahlberg would be a pretty awesome Fred Durst. I mean. I, he's I, too old. No, I, I think I've changed my perspective on it, everything now. It's weird because he's both too old and too good looking. I'd let Mark Wahlberg play any of the aforementioned parts. <laughs> and Mark Wahlberg as Kurt Loder. And as Fred Durst. And Mark Wahlberg as Michael Lang. Uh, okay. Let's do a Mark Wahlberg line reading. It was dangerous to be around. The whole scene was scary. There were just waves of hatred bouncing around the place. It was clear we had to get out of there. Pretty what do you good. think? That's pretty good. Pretty great? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, what would you call this thing? Oh, wait. Actually, I haven't even asked you. Would you, would you see this? Yeah, I definitely would. I definitely would. Because like I said, I, I mean, I don't know. En- I didn't realize that this was like such a disaster. I mean, I can't, you can't, we kind of all glossed over it. It was also sort of just pre-internet. Yeah. So it didn't get as much attention as it would have if it had happened five years later, you know? Well, there's so much hyperbole that we built up the fire Festival as, like, the most disastrous thing yeah. that ever happened. But, like, what happened is people had to sleep in tents and eat bad food. I know. Like, it wasn't great. It was definitely a I mean, rip-off. there was also no music. And, and there was, was no a, music. And it was a music festival. Fine. But, like... I don't think a lot of people, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think a lot of people were, like, physically harmed in the fire Festival. Yeah, it didn't sound like that. I mean, unless you were, like, lactose intolerant and you got one of those cheese sandwiches. Yeah, which we shouldn't joke about things like that. I was like, that cheese sandwich doesn't look that bad. I mean, if you took a picture of almost anything you ate for lunch on any given day, it wouldn't look that great. No. Like, we've had dinners that look more pathetic than that. Our dinner last night was the Trader Joe's hot peppers, which were great. Some weird cauliflower gnocchi, gnocchi, which you did not like. It was out of a frozen bag. Out of a frozen bag and like vegan chicken. <laughs> like if we'd taken a picture of that, we could have been like a viral fire festival disaster. It's true. I don't know. I don't know. What would you call this thing? What would I call it? Um, um, what was the name of Break Stuff maybe? Oh, Break Stuff is a yeah. good name. Oh, God. Just an idea. I was going to say festival or free for all. Oh, okay. Yeah. What about red hats and khakis? (laughs) (laughs) Do you think people will get it, though? Do you think they'll understand the comparison I'm trying to subtly make? No, I don't. I don't think so, Tim. I don't think I, you you know, no way. Um, This is on my mind because Alyssa Milano wrote a great article for The Wrap today, Mm -hmm. the website where I work, about red hats and khakis was really well written. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't consider Alyssa Milano like a writer. She's a really good writer. It actually yeah. wasn't Red Hats and Khakis. She was just talking about the Red Hats. Wasn't she liking them to she KKK liken, hoods? She likened them to KKK hoods. And as a rhetorical piece, it was it was powerful writing. She did a good job. Wow. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. I am not necessarily... Whatever. I don't care. Do you know uh, Alyssa Milano? No. Okay. No. I could maybe see her in this movie. 
if Alyssa Milano wants a role in this movie, first, um, she'd have to go find someone to make the movie and write and direct the movie, and then she can have any role she wants as long as they're cool with it. But she, I'm cool with it. She's in one of my top ten movies of all time. Do you know which one? Uh, the one where I'm confusing her with the daughter in the Tony Danza movie where he's freaking out because his daughter's hot and like guys are bothering her. No, I guess I don't know. I don't know what movie that is. Tony Danza. Tony Danza is like the dad who's like spazzing out. Who's the like, boss? That was the TV show she was on. Yeah, she was on that. Tony Danza that was her a movie. TV dad. I know. I'm, okay. I'll find it. Okay. I'll look up Tony Danza movies while you tell me. What is your favorite movie that Alyssa Milano's on? I can't believe you don't know this. I'm disappointed. Hateful Eight? Did I miss her? Commando. She's in, Oh, she's Schwarzenegger's daughter in Commando? Yes. Oh, my God. Yeah, you're right. She's yeah. good in it. She's great. She's really good. Yeah, I like Alyssa Milano. She's great. I do, too. Um, the Tony Danza movie. <laughs> Wait, so she was in a Tony Danza movie and she was in a TV show with Tony Danza? No, Tony Danza was in the movie She's Out of Control, and I was confusing Alyssa Milano with whoever his daughter is in that movie because um, she played the she played like the girl in his care uh, on Who's the Boss? Yeah, Sam. It's the Sam, thank you. Um, she's Out of Control is she was daddy's little girl now she's at that age where girls go wild, guys go crazy, and dads go nuts. Whoa. Yeah. Sounds like something everybody should check out. It has an 11% on Rotten Tomatoes, but don't believe them. Was, okay, am I totally losing my mind, or was Alyssa Milano in Poison Ivy 2? That sounds, she was in a Poison Ivy. She was. Yeah. And she was also in the Amy Fisher movie. Oh, yeah, totally. She yeah. played Amy Fisher. Yeah. Um, no, but was she, she, was she Poison Ivy 2? Was, was she, she Poison, Poison Ivy or was she the Sarah Gilbert character in Poison Ivy 2? Like, was she the Poison Ivy or was she the victim of Poison Ivy? I assume she was the Poison two. Ivy. Two. We know she wasn't in the one, the classic Poison Ivy, because we all know who was in that. Drew Barrymore was the Poison Ivy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when you Google Poison Ivy, also, instead of getting what you're looking for, the movies, you get actual Poison Ivy. Poison Ivy 2... This is really good podcasting. This podcast should be called, like, Googling Things. Um, yeah, Alyssa Milano played Lily, uh, who is definitely from this picture, the Poison Ivy. Who was her Poison Ivy victim? Um, Carrie Ellis. No, I'm sorry, that's, Carrie, that, Carrie Yules. That's Babysitter. No, that's not Babysitter. He was in Poison Ivy 2 and The Babysitter? It wasn't The Babysitter. That's not what that movie's called. With uh, Alicia Silverstone? Yeah. Are you sure? Oh, no, it's The Crush. That it was the crush. the crush, yeah. Alicia Silverstone, I think, was also in another movie called The Babysitter. If right? anyone is still listening, um, <laughs> if you can ignore everything we've said for the last 10 minutes. Just go check out Alyssa Milano's Twitter page, for yeah. the love of God. Just stop listening. Yeah, normally we would say to please um, give us stars on iTunes or something, but we'd really rather that you just go like or retweet something Alyssa Milano has done. She's great. Sounds good. Thanks. Bye.